It's the 13th of November, 2016, and this is episode 314 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode, I'm pleased to share with you three short talks from the New Context Conference, which took place earlier this month in San Francisco. From Ryan, we'll hear about the mechanics of building a distributed blockchain DNS system with Blockstack, and then finish up today's show with an insightful look at how blockchains are helping cryptography rather than the other way around. But first, Lightning co-founder Elizabeth shares a brief history of smart contracts. Enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Uh, always really fun to be the first speaker after lunch. I'm sorry to drag you away from your food, but I hope this is enjoyable. So today I'm going to be talking about smart, contra smart contracts and the blockchain as court. And I did previously teach about um, the history of the internet and the intersection between law and technology. So we'll go a little bit into the history of the internet and law. So back in 1996, the first major law in the U.S. to regulate the internet was passed. It was called the Communications Decency Act, and there was a huge uproar. Yeah, okay, those of you that know, um, there was a huge uproar, especially from the internet freedom communities, um, the EFF, and the like, um, in part because this was an attempt to regulate free speech. Uh, one of the aspects of the law was that it was going to make it a potentially criminal act to say indecent words to people under 18 on the internet. So as we know, you know, the seven dirty words, all of that, that just wasn't necessarily going to fly. So there was a big protest. Um, the EFF led what was called a blue ribbon campaign, and a lot of internet activists spoke out against this law as they saw as an attempt to regulate the internet and shut down free speech. Along came somebody named uh, John Perry Barlow. How many people have heard of him? John Perry Barlow? Um, he's one of the founders of the EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation, a digital civil liberties organization, and he was a lyricist for the Grateful Dead. So he went from being in, in the music world to being in the internet world. And he wrote this famous uh, piece back in 96, where he basically posits that the internet cannot be regulated. It is a new place with a new community, and it does not subscribe to the laws of the outside world. Um, he says, you know, you have no sovereignty where we gather, we have no elective government, and we're not likely to have one. Um, you do not know us, and you do not know a world. Cyberspace does not lie within your borders. He says uh, that your legal concepts don't matter here. Um, you're terrified of, of us. Um, we're a different culture. And we will create a civilization of the mind. And that it will be a better one than those that governments have made. And this was on February 8th in 1996. Fast forward to 1999. Along comes a law professor named Lawrence Lessig. How many people here know about Lawrence Lessig? So I actually uh, found the Japanese uh, translation of the book here. This is the cover. Um, he releases a book called Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace. And the argument that Larry Lessig made was effectively that Bella was wrong. That actually the internet can be regulated and it will be regulated. But actually the way in which it's regulated may differ from the way that past things were regulated. So for example, in his book, 
And he calls this, by the way, the pathetic dot. I don't know if it's pathetic because it has a lot of different things pushing on it. Um, but there are a variety of different forces um, that can regulate the internet, including uh, market and norms, law, or what he calls his East Coast Code. So basically, you know, the, the laws we know today. And then architecture or code, as he calls West Coast Code. And here he makes the argument that code actually can be a form of law. That if something is written into code, it can regulate. And unlike the architecture in the real world that might be determined by, say, physics or, or bridges um, you know, that humans built, um, code is entirely built by humans. So it's a different world when this code can regulate. Let's, let's fast forward again uh, to 2016. There was a really interesting experiment um, on the Ethereum blockchain called the DAO. How many people here? Heard about this, the DAO? So for those that have not, um, well, the creators of this con smart contract, if you will, um, had really interesting marketing and they were really going all out and they were saying, you know, this is revolutionary. You know, it's autonomous, it's rewarding, and it's code. And all the code is built into the contract. And what th this DAO, and they called themselves the DAO, effectively was, was a means for people um, to buy tokens whereby they would invest into a crowdfunded venture fund of sorts, where the various members of this crowdfunded venture fund uh, would then vote on proposals, and then those proposals would get funded. And there were all sorts of complexities that are beyond the scope of what we're discussing today, but it was a highly com complex contract. So the creators of the DAO said things like, this is operating solely with the steadfast iron rule of unstoppable code. Um, and so, for example, um, here is right before they ended their crowd sale where they raised money that was all within this smart contract, where over 100 million US dollars worth had been raised. Here was after uh, the, their sale finished. It was started in April, I think ended it at the end of May, May 28th, um, where they had raised 165 million US dollars worth of Ether that was input in here. Uh, the, the exchange rate depended upon exactly how much was in this smart contract. So you had the founder of the company that created the DAO, it was called Slocket, saying things like, holding so much energy, the Colossus of the DAO is able to withstand all threats. Famous last words. Can you guess what happened next? <laughs> So here's a slide from uh, a friend and colleague um, over at Cornell. His name is Professor Eamon Gunsir. He gave a great postmortem after the DAO, in fact, had been hacked, uh, where he talks about it, it was either 50, 60, or 70 million that was actually taken from the DAO, depending upon the exchange rate of the day. Um, where an attacker came in and was able to use what was called a re-entrancy bug and do all sorts of things. There were all these child DAOs where you could create sub-DAOs and basically was able to vote on those and effectively attack those too. So there were a lot of people in the midst of all this that were saying this is a huge milestone you know, for crowdfunding and this is the largest crowdfunding project ever and it was you know, over $150 million. And you know, people thought it was going to make history. And actually, this didn't make history. It just you know, didn't necessarily make the history that people thought it would make. So the aftermath of all of this is that the Ethereum community came together. Um, they decided to fork their blockchain to return the funds that were stolen. And there was another coin that then came out of this called Ethereum Classic. So the, the 
the blockchain split, and there are now two currencies, one of which, uh, in, in which the attacker kept the funds, and the other one the attacker did not. The Ethereum uh, blockchain is worth more, and the token's worth more, but they're both going strong. And here's a really interesting example of code potentially being law. Um, so within the terms of the DAO, uh, the creators effectively said, well, it's the contract that governs, and everything that is embedded in this contract is, is what you know, is going to effectively be you know, what people abide by. But what happens in a world where you know, there are bugs in this code? Is code still law? And if you ask me, um, the answer is, it depends. And that's, by the way, when you go to law school, everyone says the answer is it depends. So it's like, I know, a really unsatisfying answer. But um, when it comes to very large thefts, and when you have a contract where the intent of the contract was for people to not have their, their funds stolen, um, you know, courts typically look at things like intent. Um, but but when, if it's like, I had $100 stolen, well, are you really going to go to a court because you had $100 stolen? Because actually it would cost far more to go to this court. So in many cases, we're in the world in which we're figuring this out right now. So let's rewind a little bit to uh, the year 2015. Um, the Lightning Network, this is what I got involved with. Um, my colleagues, uh, Joseph Poon and Hedge Dreja, wrote this really cool paper um, about Lightning. And what Lightning, at its fundamental level, is, it's a smart contract system based on top of Bitcoin. This is a fun name by my friend Preston Byrne, who really loves Marmots. Um, and what it effectively does is it uses the Bitcoin blockchain um, as a dispute resolution mechanism, and you're able to defer the broadcasting of transactions, and then when you want to go to the blockchain, it can effectively be the court. So here's a, a meta um, slide here. This is me giving a talk about Lightning, and now I have a tweet, and I'm giving a talk about the tweet. Um, so on Lightning, what we have is, it's a form of smart contracts. It's a form of code as law, because the blockchain is the judge. It's the court and it's the arbiter. And there's a one or a zero outcome. So it's different than a human judge who might actually you know, make a determination and look at evidence. But in this case, it is predetermined what is going to happen. And the blockchain can make that determination. So for those of you that you know, may not be as familiar with Lightning, very briefly, I'll go into how it works. So you have two participants, Alice and Bob, and they put a two out of two multi-signature entry onto the blockchain. They can each put, say, in this case, you know, $10 worth of Bitcoin in there to have a $20 uh, two out of two entry in the blockchain. Um, so this creates what is called a payment channel. And then they can update the state between each other, uh, exchanging digital signatures. Um, so then their balance is it's a local consensus. So as opposed to the blockchain, where everybody knows what's happening at every time, Lightning allows people to locally know what's happening and then later defer to the blockchain and trust that the blockchain is going to uh, adjudicate correctly. Um, so if Alice and Bob want to close and settle out the transaction, they can then go to the blockchain. Um, they have cryptographic proof of you know, what the latest transaction is, and the blockchain will enforce that. So if I were just, you know, if Alice and Bob are the only two people transacting, that's not all that exciting because how often do you pay, you know, one person repeatedly? So what's so exciting about Lightning is it enables you to have peer-to-peer um, -peer payments uh, via intermediaries. 
Um, so you can have a variety of linked payment channels. And then, you know, Alice here can get all the way to Aaron. And unlike, say, traditional correspondent banking, um, with Lightning, you don't have to rely on trust. Cryptographically, the intermediaries cannot steal your funds. They can only forward it. Uh, sorry, they can only receive it if and only if they've already forwarded the transaction. So this is a new type of transacting where the intermediary does not have to be trusted. And then Lightning, um, what we're building for right now is on the Bitcoin blockchain, but it can also work on other blockchains such as an equity chain, um, an asset chain, other digital currencies, and things of the like. And it also can enable trustless exchanging between them. As long as your intermediary has liquidity on both chains, you don't have to trust that intermediary. So really the 21 million Bitcoin question is, uh, how can we bring secure, usable smart contracts to the world? And this is something you know, that we're all working on. With Lightning, part of it is that we're building this as a layer two protocol. It's a second layer above Bitcoin's blockchain. You don't have the complexity in the lower level protocol itself. Um, right now, we are testing on Bitcoin's test network. So you know, we're not using real money. Um, we're awaiting a change called segregated witness that, fingers crossed, will be um, integrated into the Bitcoin protocol within the next few months. Um, we also, in the early days, will test it and send very small values you know, send less than a cent. By the way, one of the great things about Lightning is that it can enable sending tiny amounts of value with extremely uh, low fees at very high volume and near instantly, which is very exciting because you've never been able to do this kind of thing before. So you can check out on GitHub. We have our code online. Um, it's all open source. The protocol is available, github.com slash lightning network. And usability is something I'm very passionate about. It's a really important aspect of all of this. And we are working on an app in the early days of Lightning um, that works on Bitcoin's testnet. So you can use this to send test Bitcoin. By the way, as some of our team members have, they're really rich and like test Bitcoin. But unfortunately, it's not worth all that much. Uh, so we're building this app for Lightning. And we're, we'll, we'll be building for mobile as well. And this is a desktop app. And in the end, you know, as we've gone through the history of Coda's Law, and now we're finally seeing this live out today in terms of the possibilities of smart contracts, um, our goal is to enable the blockchain to be a global decentralized judge. But this judge, you know, cannot be bribed. Um, there will not be, say, subjective opinions, but it will all be programmed in in a way that's safe and secure. And our goal is to power the world's financial transactions with Lightning and bring smart contracts to the masses in ways that are usable and secure. Check out lightning.network or twitter.com slash lightning. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. That's terrific. So we learned a little bit of somebody who wants to decentralize maybe the law of the internet in a way that cannot be bribed. Um, we have another speaker here, and I don't know how old he is now, but I do know that when he was under 30 years of age, he was declared within 30 notable people by a magazine called Forbes. He was also the president of the Princeton Entrepreneurial Society Club group, and they won an award during his regime. He is now the founder of Blockstack Labs, which is working to build a decentralized internet. So we're very glad to have Ryan Shea join us on stage. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you.
Hi, everyone. Thank you. Oh, this is the wrong slide. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, as Okay, can we start from the beginning? All right, sweet. Great, thank you. Okay, so my name is Ryan Shea, and I am here to talk about fostering innovation and economic inclusion with decentralized applications. So, where do I go? Do I have a clicker? Oh, thank you. It's all right, thank you. Okay. Uh, so, here's a little bit about me uh, that you already know. And if you would like to tweet about this presentation, uh, there are actually two handles that you should be aware of. One is my handle, it's Ryan E. Shea, and the second one is Blockstack.org for Blockstack, um, which is the organization that I'm a part of. So, the internet started out as a decentralized system. But one of the problems is that over time, it became more and more centralized. Companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon started to build extremely large proprietary networks. And there's a lot of lock-in, and it's hard for people to actually innovate. So there are issues in terms of innovation. There's issues in terms of inclusion. So a few large companies actually make all the money. Um, platforms actually lock in the users and developers, and data custodianship actually leads to massive breaches. But with decentralization, we can actually reverse some of the trends of centralization that we've seen over the past few decades. And I like to focus on four main benefits of decentralization that are the four I's. So it's innovation, inclusion, as in economic inclusion, and uh, independence, and then information security, right? So in terms of innovation, anyone can participate. Any developer can build any application that they want. In terms of inclusion, the barriers to entry for building and distributing software are reduced. So there's a lot more software uh, types of software that are available for users, and that increases options, that increases savings for the users. The users win. Um, in terms of independence, that means that developers are not tied to certain platforms, and the users are not tied to specific pieces of software. And in terms of information security, that means that, that users can actually keep data with them, and we can store data at the edges, and then users can avoid massive data breaches with these data silos that store everyone's information together. Right, so we can avoid all of that. Now, the problem, I'm sorry, the, um, the decentralized applications are actually a, uh, a better way forward, right? And so we have a few notable decentralized applications that we can take a look at. One is email, another is BitTorrent, and another one is Bitcoin. So email is actually very, very, um, uh, one of the earliest uses of the internet. And it actually predates the web, it actually comes back to 1962. And email is a decentralized network. Anyone can use one of many different pieces of software. They can use Gmail, they can use Outlook, you can use clients on mobile and desktop, and any device. And they all speak the same protocols. And so this decentralized network enables a large amount of innovation and enables a large amount of inclusion. And it's important because developers and users can all work and interoperate, and not, they're not tied down to any single provider, right? The second one is BitTorrent, and 
with BitTorrent, it's a content distribution system. And there are some illicit uses, and there's also some very legitimate uses. And BitTorrent itself, there's many different uh, pieces of software that you could actually use to interact with the network, just like with email. And the, again, the same theme applies. You can use whatever software you'd like, and you can participate. And anyone can build a new client to work on top of the BitTorrent protocol. And then the third one is Bitcoin, which comes back to 2009. And Bitcoin, again, there you can use whatever uh, piece of software that you'd like to interact on the network, whether it's mobile clients, desktop clients. There are dozens and dozens of different uh, clients and do dozens and dozens of different software projects that developers are pushing forward to allow you to interact and be part of this decentralized money system. So this is all great, but one of the problems is that decentralized applications are actually hard to build. So there's increased complexity. There's increased security concerns, and there's increased scalability concerns. But with Blockstack, we're actually making decentralized applications easy to build. So with traditional applications, you have servers to maintain. You have databases to maintain. But with Blockstack, you actually just publish code. And you can use the user as the backend for your to get and put data back with the user, right? And the users bring their own cloud storage, and the data gets synced up to their cloud storage providers and encrypted. With traditional applications, you have identity management systems to build out and payment systems to build out. But with Blockstack, you actually have identity and payments already built in. And of course, with payments, it's using Bitcoin. So we can actually get a little more concrete in how Blockstack makes building these decentralized applications easy. So we provide a library called Blockstack.js. You can build a single page web application like you normally would, right? With an HTML file, JavaScript files, and CSS files. And instead of calling a traditional API to interact with your server and database, you can actually issue calls to the user's data store. So first, you can authenticate the user, right? And you can authenticate the user with the built-in authentication and identity system that Blockstack provides. Next, you can actually get data from the user. So in this example, you can get the user's photos, right? And the next thing you can do is, let's say you have a photo uploading window. You can then put data back with the user. And any application that speaks this same photo protocol can get the photos from the other photo application that the user is using, and they can actually put photos back for all the other photo applications to consume. So the important thing now here is that the user is independent, is actually not tied down to any particular software provider for managing their photos. As long as they speak the same language, they can use any client they want, just like they can use any client with email. So it's not the same as using a Facebook or an Instagram to manage your photos. Your data is now yours, and you're in control. So Blockstack handles the complexity here. We have storage, authentication, identity, and naming. And it all runs on top of blockchain technology, and the applications build on top of these services. This technology has been thoroughly vetted. So we have published several uh, papers 
And one of them actually is in Usenix ATC, which is a uh, very well-known uh, conference. And we have a large, growing open source community with expertise in many different areas, including distributed systems, cryptography, and user experience. Blockstack is the largest non-financial protocol across any open blockchain, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, all the open blockchains. And our community is growing very fast. So we have about 2,000 people in our Slack community, and we have 2,000 people in our uh, meetup groups around the world, from New York to San Francisco, to um, China, to every, all these other cities across Europe. And here is a deeper dive into the technical workings of Blockstack. Now, I won't go into all this, but there's a few things that you should take away. And one is that Blockstack is blockchain agnostic. So it works on Bitcoin, and it can also work on top of Ethereum and Zcash. And drivers can be built for any blockchain that you'd like it to operate on top of. The other thing is that we do not reinvent the wheel where we don't have to. So we, like, we reuse existing blockchains, and we also re reuse existing cloud storage providers. So users can bring their own cloud storage providers, and they can have multiple. And the data is synchronized and encrypted with them. So it provides a layer on top of these cloud storage providers to commoditize them, just like it provides a layer on top of the blockchains. And then BlockSec, of course, as we saw before, provides these common components for naming, identity, authentication, and storage. So the next thing that we're actually coming out with is the BlockStack browser. And this is very exciting because it is a way for consumers and developers to experience this new BlockStack-enabled internet, where applications can be built really easily in a decentralized way. And the developers actually use this browser to debug and build their applications, and then the consumers can come in and use them. And there's a couple key differences with the BlockStack browser with, from normal browsers. One is that it uses BlockStack's domain name system, which is a decentralized domain name system. There's no ICANN, there's no uh, individual companies that are running the TLDs, right? It's very decentralized. And the second key component is that identity management along with authentication and storage is built in. So you download the browser, you have an identity panel, and you can create new identities. You can hook up your cloud storage providers, and then you can authenticate with an application, and the app gets data from you and puts data back to you and then syncs it up to your storage. So one way to think of this is with iOS and Android, they were making native applications easy, where the UI components live on the device. But it still uses APIs, so there's still lots of code and lots of uh, data that's not stored on the device. But what we are working on is actually making serverless applications easy, where it's completely on the device, completely decentralized and peer-to-peer. -peer. And the UI components live on your device, the data lives on your device, the code lives on your device. And this is a new way to actually deploy and discover applications. So we can go through a few different case studies of decentralized applications so you can kind of get a feel for what the new 
uh, capabilities that these decentralized applications provide beyond what we've already, the existing apps that we've looked at. So the first one that I'd like to take a look at is a secure software distribution application, right? And this is an application where developers can publish their software, they can sign it with their identities on Blockstack, you can sign the software package, and then when you download it, you can actually look at the signatures and make sure that it came from the right people. And then you can actually audit the signatures yourself. So this is actually a way to ensure that you are in fact using the right software. The second application is a publicly auditable voting app. And this app is one where nobody runs the vote. You can have an online community come together and they all distribute, they sign their votes and they distribute their votes in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion and then each local client builds the vote on, the, on their own. And then the user can actually audit the vote and make sure that the votes were tallied up correctly. The third one is a crowdfunded investigative reporting application. And this is a decentralized blogging system where people can actually support your work by funding it with Bitcoin. And you can be either completely identified or anonymous. So let's say you're doing some investigative reporting on the shady business practices of a particular company. And you want people to be able to support your work and you want to make sure that it can't be censored and, and no one will be able to um, figure, figure out who you are, right? So this is actually a way to provide a model for this type of um, funding for, for journalism that people really want to exist. So I'll close out with, by revisiting the benefits of decentralized applications, right? So it's innovation, it's inclusion, it's independence and it's information security. And all four of these things are very, very important for society to function properly and for all of us to have a very secure future. So this is why I'd like to say that you should think more about decentralization and think more about the importance of decentralized applications. And for our economy and our future, we should make this a very, very important concern. Thank you very much. The magic word for today's episode is context. That's context. C-O-N-T-E-X-T. You've got until the 20th of November to visit letstalkbitcoin.com to enter the magic word for your share of the listener rewards. Back to the show. Thank you, Ryan from Blockstack. So we got a little bit of a glimpse of blockchain and the law, and a glimpse of a decentralized future that includes more folks in a better way. And now I think that sort of trajectory is going to match up naturally with our next speaker, who is someone whose personal research interests uh, are aligned with cryptography and privacy and fairness, voting systems, personal data. She's a member of the Science Council of Japan, and today she's a senior engineer at NEC, where I'm very Pleased to introduce Kazui Sako. Okay, the title of my talk today is How Blockchain Helps Crypto uh, Protocols. But when I say this title, people make faces because people are more familiar with this question how crypto helps blockchain. And this is a very easy question to answer because we have public key elliptic curve crypto system, 
digital signatures, photo signatures, aggregated signatures, hash functions, hash trays, Merkle trays, zero knowledge proofs, proof of knowledge, multi-party computation, ring signatures, blind signatures, and many more. This morning we heard about additive homomorphic encryptions, which also helps privacy and verifiability of data on the blockchain. So, this is easy question, and now I'm going to move on to the difficult question, which is how blockchain helps crypto protocols or cryptographic protocols. Before I start answering this question, I'd like to explain what cryptographic protocols is. It's not encryption protocol like SSL or TLS. SSL or TLS, it's about a protocol that does the setup for encryptions. So cryptographic protocols is something different. Okay, so I want to see here, show of hands, who is not familiar with cryptographic protocols? Okay, thank you. So it's my time for me to explain. Well, it's hard to explain, but it's a group of technologies that allows to achieve special goals of the protocols using cryptography. So what's this special goal? Um, a typical example is called millionaire's problem. And we have famous Alice and Bob, and they have some money in their wallet. And this special goal for Alice and Bob here is for some reason. They want to learn, find out which of them have larger amount in their wallet without disclosing what exactly they have. So this is called Millionaire's Problem, and back in 1980s, I think, they found a very nice protocol. If you exchange a lot of bits in a cryptographic way, they can reach, uh, they can learn which one has more money without revealing how much they exactly have. So this is an example of a classical uh, cryptographic protocols. Let's go on to a second example, which is uh, flipping a fair coin. We have here Alice and Bob again, and while they are apart, they want to agree on a single uh, coin flip. And it must be fair, and no one is cheating. So we also have these cryptographic protocols for flipping coin, and moreover, it doesn't have to be only Bob, Alice, and Bob. We can have more parties engaged remotely, and still they agree on a fair coin flip outcome. Isn't that wonderful? So the last example is voting. I know next week is going to be very exciting for the U.S., and we also heard from Brian in the previous talk that using cryptography, we can tally the votes and we can verify the votes. We can verify the correctness of the tally without disclosing who voted for what. Isn't that great that the, the vote you casted, you can verify that is indeed counted in the announcement on the newspaper next day? 
you want to make sure that your vote has been counted. And cryptographic protocols allows you to publicly verify that all the votes are counted and the tally is co correct. Okay, so that's about what I'm excited about cryptographic protocols. But as you see in this picture, I think there is a big gap between these theoretical cryptographic protocols and the life we now live in, the real life. I think we can think of many reasons why there is a gap. Maybe the protocols are too theoretical, too ideal, nobody wants that security or that fairness, or maybe too complicated, and therefore, maybe people are not interested in implementing these cryptographic protocols. So, now the question I have today is how does blockchain help this situation? And they will take away the gap, and this blockchain will bring down these cryptographic protocols, technology, and all these results of research down to Earth so everybody can enjoy its fruits from the research. Okay, so uh, I will now go on to some of the examples of how we can use blockchain and incorporate it in implementing secure cryptographic protocols. One example is the notion of public bulletin board. Cryptographers had this notion from a long time ago that if we could have a deal public bulletin board, many cryptographic protocols can be made much simpler and efficient. But today, to my knowledge, we didn't know how to properly implement a public bulletin board. So what we do in the papers, we assume if there is a public bulletin board, then we can construct such and such protocol to make it secure and we prove it that's secure without knowing how we can fulfill that statement of having a public bulletin board. So what I mean by a secure public bulletin board is that anyone can write into this bulletin board and if you once wrote it, you cannot change it, it's immutable. And we can see uh, who wrote that um, message and that everyone can see the content of the bulletin board. You see, this is very similar to what blockchain brings. And if the, uh, the blockchain technology brings us idea public bulletin board, that's how they can help crypto pro, uh, cryptographic protocols. Okay, the second question, uh, the second issue that they can solve is that most cryptographic protocols are designed assuming message, any message uh, reaches to the other party. But here you see angry Alice and angry Bob, and angry Alice says, I sent the message to Bob, but Bob ignored it. And what does Bob say? Alice never sent me a message. So this kind of um, dispute, uh, Ryan, you had this thing, right? What did you say in there? It was uh, dispute solving? Dispute. No. Okay, okay, sorry, I got it wrong, okay. Anyway, so uh, it was here, okay. 
sorry. So uh, this kind of message, this kind of dispute, it's somewhat, it, it's something that we cannot solve from the outside. In Japan, we have, we have this terminology saying water spraying argument, mizukakeron, saying that you can't decide which one is saying the, the truth. And sometimes in cryptographic protocols, we try to uh, av uh, avoid the situation by issuing receipt. That if Bob received some message, he's going to sign it and claim that he received it. So Alice can use the receipt for later uh, claiming what, what the situation. But this is not really a real world um, solution because uh, if Alice couldn't get the receipt, she would blame it on Bob that Bob did not issue her a receipt. And what Bob would say can be two things, that Alice never sent a message for him to sign, or he would claim he, he sent the message, but Alice is claiming she didn't receive it. So these kind of disputes is something, again, this public board blockchain can help us. Okay, and there's more on the implementation. So most cryptographic protocols requires many assumptions. Uh, having a public bulletin board is an example of such an assumptions, but they are more realistic assumptions and something we need to agree before executing protocols, such as semantics. If I want to vote for yes, am I putting zero or one as a vote value? Sometimes people use URLs to show what does this semantics would mean. But with current technology of web servers, I'm really scared of this. Because I know those web servers can be personalized. So if I ask for this uh, uh, configuration XML, the, the person might re reply different answers to different people, and you cannot verify how the server responded to the other person. So having, uh, having a common setup, it's something very hard in real life. And also we need to agree on security parameters. Uh, if, if these settings are different, it's not that protocols would not um, be established, but moreover, the person who's engaging in, a, in this protocol with different settings might suffer from security breaches. So that's something that's very scared of. And also, um, uh, someone's public key is something we need to um, agree before performing the protocols. And uh, this was the point I wanted to come to Ryan, is about how can we know which software is trustworthy. When you bootstrap the cryptographic protocols, you need to rely on the software that's running for you. Okay, so I'd like to summarize my talk. It's on how does blockchain help crypto, crypto protocols. It's first as a public written board uh, to guarantee the delivery of the messages and sorry, <laughs> for sharing of the predetermined values and sharing of correct secure programs on top of making the protocols efficient.
And besides these technological um, help, I think socially, blockchain really helped these crypto protocols because they reduce this emotional resistance in using public key cryptography. When I talk to my customers, maybe even two years ago, they would hesitate to use public key systems because they're afraid of, oh, I have to use PKI. I know it's, it's very complicated and it's troublesome and that's the last thing they want to use. They want to use the PKIs. So these three-letter words really kept me away from implementing something with public keys. And also... The, the rise of blockchain raised more interest in transparency and fairness. Long time ago when I had these lottery systems, they said, oh, servers are fine, just, they're just trustworthy, you don't have to worry, and we don't have to use these uh, cryptographic protocols. But I think now people are starting to realize servers are not always reliable. And because blockchain is a new technology, we don't have to worry about working with legacy uh, systems. And that concludes my talk. Thank you, Fazuli. Please stay on stage. But you're not going anywhere. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Big thanks to the New Context Conference, Digital Garage, and all the speakers who appeared. Next week, we'll hear the speakers again as I question them during a panel on the subject of scaling. Not just technically, but in use cases that go beyond the appeal of money. This episode was very lightly edited and featured content from the speakers as mentioned. If you have any questions or comments, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com.